Hello and welcome to the final episode of the 2014-2015 season of HKS PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and as usual, we'll be going on hiatus over the summer break, but we'll be back in September with a whole new slate of guests to bring you more unique perspectives on policy, politics, and global issues. In the meantime, please keep in touch by following us on Twitter at PolicyCast and letting us know what you'd like to hear more of in the upcoming season. Or if you're listening to this on iTunes, give us a rating and leave some feedback. I look forward to hearing from you. Now on to the show. The worlds of art and public policy often seem tied together only within the context of funding for institutions like the National Endowment for the Arts or for primary school arts education. But thinking about art only as the subject of policy choices does a disservice to the extent to which the arts shape policy. Artistic endeavors can be tremendously influential, from subverting authoritarian regimes to illuminating injustices in established democracies. Today we're joined by one of the most influential artists in the United States. Tony Award-winning director Diane Paulus is a professor of the practice of theater in Harvard's Department of English and artistic director of the American Repertory Theater. Professor, thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here. The arts are obviously important in public life, but it's not as uh, easy to draw a link between their importance uh, as it is for other things uh, that are related to public policy. Uh, Have you ever figured out a way to define why the arts are important? I think about it all the time because not only am I a creative person in this field, in other words, I direct shows, but I also run an institution. So in the not-for-profit arts world as a leader, you are constantly having to define why your institution matters. So this question um, has been on my uh, brain for years. And I, I actually think that we often don't advocate clearly enough for the power of the arts. And that's part of maybe why the arts gets relegated to, uh, you know, the luxury item. It gets cut from public school curriculums. It, it, it feels um, a great add-on, but not something that is really critical to what it means to be alive and to be a citizen is, mm-hmm. is the way I look at it. Uh, for me, I always take inspiration from history And as a theater person, I look back to times, uh, say, 5th century B.C. Athens, when the arts were absolutely integral to public life. Uh, In that case, everyone uh, who was a citizen was somehow connected to the arts. Mm -hmm. You know, the demographics were such in Athens that the population, I mean, you know, everyone was connected. You were a carpenter. You were part of the Carpenters Guild. Mm -hmm. You built the sets for the show. And, and, And the festivals were attended by everyone. They were sort of like the American idol of our times. It was Sophocles versus Aeschylus competing for the best tragedy, and everybody went. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's how you got your information. It's how you learned about the politics of the day. It's how you were understanding uh, what it meant to be a a citizen, a fully engaged citizen. Uh, And it was the forum. Uh, Politically, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the statue of Dionysus was carried down and sat in the front row, so it also had a a religious significance. Mm -hmm. But it was not separated out as... um, uh, a specialized activity. Mm-hmm. So I've always aimed for the arts to be more fully 
integrated into our society. Forget culture, but just society, because I know that it's had that power historically. And um, that's been my, my quest at the ART, is how to return theater to its central part of what it means to be a fully engaged citizen in the world. It seems like a lot of the role that it played back in the fifth century uh, was information dissemination. Obviously, we have a tremendous amount of information out there that's no problem for our current society. Uh, I imagine art adds something more than that. Yes, well, that that's exactly right. Information we can get now whenever we want it, facts or supposed facts, I, I guess. Th- that, in a way, I think is why uh, I'll talk about the theater, because that's the field I represent, why the theater is more important than ever, because we are in an age of inundation of facts and an ability to get information, you know, within seconds of an event happening. And I think what we lose is uh, the, the, the moment of two different things happening. One, the, re- the real development of ideas, and I know people have written about this. What have, what have happened to ideas? We have plenty of facts, but where are the, the, the thought makers that actually get us to engage in a topic in a deeper way? Um, for me, the power of the theater is we are uniquely poised to attack an issue, and through things like character and narrative and empathy actually move an audience, a listener, to perhaps engage with a point of view that they don't really entertain as their own. Mm -hmm. And I think in our culture, in our world, in our politics today, that is more critical than ever in the increasingly connected world we live Mm -hmm. in, where we're so quick to form opinions, where we're so quick to take sides or tune out. How can we, what are the devices we have to actually get people to listen, to open up to a point of view that maybe they would have considered? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yes, we can do that through panels and books and blogs, but there is something about the creative act which engages you on a level that takes you to a place um, where you're really moved and you're potentially transformed. And I, I had this experience. I think we're, we're so lucky as a theater institution to be on Harvard's campus because we just um, have a, a, a connection with places like the Kennedy School or the, the law school mm-hmm. or the medical school, you know, institutions across many fields that are analyzing the issues of the day, the divinity school. We've had partnerships with all these institutions, but one of the most recent um, partnerships has been with the Center for the Environment, and it was Dan Schrag who uh, runs that center, Mm -hmm. who came to my office here at the theater and said, I need you. No one is listening. Mm -hmm. And people don't know how to think about the future, and that's the problem. That's why people aren't able to motivate about issues of climate change, because no one knows how to think beyond our time. Mm-hmm. And no one would remember the American Dust Bowl if it wasn't for Grapes of Wrath. And Hurricane Sandy happened. And we're, guess what? We've already forgotten. So we need artists. We need stories. We, you know, It becomes sort of a mission of artists to keep these issues alive, to keep them pertinent, to keep them relevant, to actually find ways to wake people up. Art is, uh, in its own end, something worth pursuing. But 
in terms of public policy, really its value is in uh, augmenting more pragmatic concerns when you're putting together uh, performance? Is that something that's in the back of your head? Sure. I, I It is. And I'm often asked, how do I choose uh, what artists we bring to the ART or what productions we decide to do? Because you know, it's a highly mediated thing we do here. We don't, we can't take every show in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a, a small amount that we actually can produce related to the world of artists who have something to say. But, but, but the answer to that is I, I look for artists who I believe are speaking to the issues of our time. And I look for artists who are engaged not just with their art making, but with, um, uh, Art that will make noise, art that will catalyze discussion. I mean, I'm always looking to program a show that I think will cause a disturbance. And I mean that in the best sense of that word, that will cause people to think, that will cause a, a discussion and dialogue. And to be specific, we did a show last season called Witness Uganda. And this uh, show landed on my desk, and it was a new musical. And it was by two unknown writers. And if I were just judging it on its artistic merit, you know, w- 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 was it fully finished yet? Was it at an excellent state of art making? The answer was no. It needed work. But the topic that these uh, writers were tackling was so um, pertinent to me. It, 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 you know, to, to give you a background, it's a story of a, an African-American based on his true story who was kicked out of his uh, church choir in, in New York City in 2004. So we're talking today, basically, mm-hmm. um, for uh, outwardly uh, acknowledging he was gay. Hard, hard to imagine, New York City, uh, Chelsea. Um, and in a moment of soul searching, uh, signed up to help build an orphanage in Uganda, as so many young people are doing. You know, I teach here on campus and I see so many young college students who are really connected to the world. They want to make a difference. Uh, you know, so many undergrads I've met are, are, are thinking about traveling abroad, whether it's South America or Africa, to help in some way. Mm-hmm. And um, so this young man did this, found out that the orphanage he was supposed to be building was a corrupt situation, a corrupt pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, Over in Uganda for six weeks, decided, what am I going to do now that I'm here? And he befriended some local teenagers in this little village um, and uh, ended up teaching them in an abandoned library. I mean, mm-hmm. not, not accredited as a teacher. He was an actor. Yep. Uh, but he just um, took it upon himself and talked to these kids and said, what do you want? And they said, we want school. It changed his life. He founded a not-for-profit and now has put through uh, a, a group of these young teenagers through um, high school now into college. Now, the musical is not a pat on the back. The musical is about how difficult it was. Mm-hmm. The musical examines the mistakes he made. And really takes a very honest look at this American impulse to help and how complicated that is, how misguided it can be. Um, But what I found in taking on the subject of this show, we brought so many people to the theater who never have come to ART, who are involved in aid work, who are involved in not-for-profit work, who said, wow, this story's never told. This story of how many mistakes we make Mm -hmm. and how through only pure intentions, um, we realize perhaps how maybe American hubristic we can be about what we think we can do in the world. Mm -hmm. And yet, does that mean you don't 
you know, uh, attempt to make a change in the world? No, you do. Mm-hmm. But but the community of dialogue and what we did, there was so much to discuss. We actually decided in this production to create a whole act devoted to discussion. So the musical was in two acts. And I said, okay, if we call all these discussions post-performance discussions, it's going to be really limited. Right. Half the people are going to leave because what's the post-performance? It's usually when the expert comes and tells you what to think about the play. And, I, and, and, of course, all my staff at the theater will be looking at their watches saying, you know, is the post-performance discussion almost over? Can we go home now? I said, we're going to call it Act 3 and call it as important as the art we're putting on the stage. Mm-hmm. And at the end of Act 2, the, uh, the, the actor whose story this was, he was actually in the show, he would stand on stage and say to the audience, we're going to take a little break, and now we're going to start Act 3, and it's a town hall, and we invite you to stay. And we're going to talk about this show and where it came from and events around it and we'd like to hear from you and do people stay oh my goodness the number of people who stayed hundreds of people stayed it wasn't you know the usual sort of 50 or 75 or maybe 100 I mean the the audience capacity was maybe 435 and almost 400 people stayed every night and it was so fascinating because it demonstrated what the power of theater can be we are a living breathing art form we're not a movie that's made that's then you know, wrapped, and you can't change it. Our show was changing with the political events of the time, and during the course of our run, the Anti-Homosexual Act was passed in Uganda, which condemned anyone who was homosexual or anyone associated with someone being homosexual Mm -hmm. uh, to life in prison. And literally artists um, that were happened to be in, there was one particular individual who was in Waltham at the time, who was from Uganda, who was seeking asylum because this law passed and came to be part of our post-show discussion and talked about his particular situation. And, you know, the, that moment when the theater can react and you can create a form of discussion uh, that actually is relating to our world, you know, people start to see that theater is not this hermetically sealed uh, artistic endeavor. Mm-hmm. It's really an endeavor artistically to connect us to our world. Right. Um, I mean, the other thing about Witness Uganda, when, when you think about public policy, we were very committed, as we are at ART, which I think the arts has an obligation to do, to not only um, invite people to your theater, but to bring your art to under-resourced groups. Right. And sadly, in that case, this includes the public school system, mm. which, um, you know, we, we know this is a trend all over the country, that arts are not always deemed necessary. So we did a school tour several months in advance of the production where our two creators, the composer and the writer, went out to the school system and went into schools and talked about their show. And this was the case of the composer and the writer. Uh, they had both uh, done work in Africa the, the gentleman I spoke with, Griffin Matthews, he had actually done, this was his story in Uganda, the composing partner had been in the Peace Corps in Mauritania. They are also a couple, mm-hmm. and they are out as a couple. And, um, you know, they were questioning whether they could make that part of their presentation. You know, how is this going to be received in public schools? They received encouragement from the school, you know, people who had invited them. Mm-hmm. And in one high school in particular, Lowell High School, um, they told their story. They outed themselves as a gay couple. Um, the kids screamed and cheered for them. And it gave so much courage to that school, in, in particular to one teacher, Deb Fowler, um, that she uh, you know, wrote us to say that this trip and this experience with artists and the impact of what they were doing through their art gave her the courage to really petition to include 
um, a, a new kind of curriculum, you know, the LB, sorry, LGBTQ curriculum into history mm-hmm. as, as a mandatory part of uh, starting in the 11th grade. Right. And she went to the governor, got the support, and this curriculum has now passed in that school. So, you know, that to me is huge. And she's so inspired. She's actually now becoming an advocate for putting this curriculum into more schools in Massachusetts and mm-hmm. nationwide. I'm very interested in the dynamic between uh, an artist and an artist's responsibility for the results of the whatever work it is they that they, they've published. I know some artists uh, would rather somewhat divorce themselves from from those results and say they're focused on the art itself. Um, whereas you seem to very much want to hold on to that. In fact, uh, I know last year you were named one of the Times most 100 influential people. Uh, it seems like that influence is very powerful. Do you think that that is important for an artist to acknowledge and use as part of their their process? It's what makes me tick. You know, I, I actually grew up in New York City and wanted to go into politics. I, I had these fantasies of being the mayor of New York. Um, I guess I grew up in the 70s in New York and saw the city struggling and just didn't understand it as a, as a little girl growing up in the city that, you know, somehow we could do better, you know, in, in our community. Um, for me, I found uh, what what felt most passionate for me was not politics, but was theater. But the aspect of theater was um, the the ability to, in a group setting, bring people together and, and make something happen. You know, that, that to me is the fundamental activity of theater as an art form. It's a collaboration. It requires individuals to give themselves to something greater than themselves. And that act for me, which requires trust, which requires uh, an ability to listen, an ability to uh, work hard selflessly, mm. um, I don't, I, I take very seriously, I don't take it lightly. And, and so that translates to me as a director, if I am the one who is pulling people together, you know, to, to climb a mountain, to build a barn, as mm-hmm. I you know, to raise a barn, to do these things. I've got to be convinced that the effort that we're making is worth it. And I take that and extend it to the idea of audience because the theater cannot exist without the audience. Mm-hmm. That is our art form. Yes, you might say that that Penguin classic copy of Hamlet or Oedipus Rex is theater, but actually it's literature. Mm-hmm. The theater lives in the actual transmission of energy words and ideas to an audience and it doesn't exist without the audience so my whole interest as a director has been in engaging the audience as a partner and rather than thinking oh I'm an artist what do I want to say or what do I want to explore and I don't think about audience because that pollutes my vision you know let me just be in my artistic bubble Mm -hmm. For many reasons, I think I came of age in a time where, you know, the NEA is a source of government subsidy, you know, was not going to be part of your life. I grew mm-hmm. up, you know, I became a, a, a young artist in the 90s. And so the idea that you would be subsidized by your government just wasn't on the radar. Mm-hmm. As a young artist, you had to be an entrepreneur. You had to reach audience. So you had to, therefore, understand why an audience would come out of their very busy life to spend a few hours with you. So that just made me think, why should I ask anyone 
to do this very generous, right. generous act, in my opinion, to give up time. Time is so valuable in our culture. Why should you bother? Mm-hmm. So that just led me to thinking about, well, then what we're doing matters. It has to matter. It has to feel pertinent. Mm-hmm. It has to feel necessary. Does that indicate that limited funding from organizations like the NEA uh, actually produced maybe positive results? <laughs> you know, I would hate to say that because I don't want to give anybody in uh, the, the government a break on this. Um, but, you know, I think what I love about being an artist is we don't let the circumstances stop us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, art, I think, is always made in reaction to constraints. Mm-hmm. And that's been uh, a living, breathing motto for me. You know, when you don't have resources, you find a way to make it work anyway. Mm-hmm. You can do theater on the street. You can do it, um, you know, outside uh, on the Charles River. You can go anywhere to make it. You don't need a state-of-the-art facility to make right. art. And and that's a very grassroots, in-the-trenches background that I came from mm-hmm. as a young artist uh, in, in the downtown New York theater scene, making shows out of shopping bags and no one was paid. And you, you had to find a way to motivate people. Right. And um, when the motivation is for something that matters, it goes back to your question, um, people will do anything. And what, what I find so encouraging, you know, because uh, it's, it's a horrible place to be cynical about um, engagement in, in our world. What I find so encouraging is being on, on Harvard's campus and around a lot of college students, um, students, they want to engage with the world. They want to understand how they can make a difference or how they can help. And, um, you know, to, to harness uh, those people who are also interested in theater and the creative life to say, you can make a difference. Um, and what, what's been really great is that when we've made these partnerships, we did it on another show several years ago called Prometheus Bound, and that's um, you know Aeschylus. It's it's it, and the writer Stephen Sater really looked at this ancient tale as the first story about a prisoner of conscience, and so we partnered with Am- Amnesty International and uh, dedicated every uh, week to a different. A prisoner of conscience around the world and we had an act three there where amnesty volunteers came mm-hmm. and when the show was over a very free form it wasn't saying to the audience you have to stay because i'm very i'm a great advocate of freedom in mm-hmm. the theater stay and learn you've just seen a show from thousands of years ago that speaks about a tyranny and what happens when you dare to speak out and you know in his case chained to a rock to perish this is going on in our world if you want to learn more about this one organization that is heralding these causes stay. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll be moved to sign a postcard or two. And and what was so great about that and the experience with Witness Uganda was we met people from the human rights world who who were inspired newly inspired because they were artists who were interested in their cause mm. and they understood how art could tell their story so so you know in, in in this increasingly siloed world we live in i think the more that artists as our own little army can connect across to other disciplines other issues mm-hmm. i think the more we can not only catalyze discussion and get people engaged but we can also pr- provide inspiration for all those soldiers in all these fields right. i mean you know i mean soldiers in the kind of you know a metaphor of that sure, sure. that are that are out there fighting causes that need you know, artists to help inspire, you know, we did it as well with a show this year called OPC by Eve Ensler, who's a great activist and mm-hmm. uh, um, a woman who's, you know, devoted her life as an artist to making change, especially for women. This play dealt with 
the climate and and garbage. And, you know, just, you know, it's not public policy, but it's interesting to think about how change happens um, since this show was all about the consumer culture and how much garbage we generate and what a problem this is for our planet. We felt as an institution, well, we can't make this production and not live by some of the questions, or not live by, but engage with the questions that the production's asking. So we made a commitment to become fully green on the production, something we hadn't done as a theater. So I think in the end, it was like 95% of the set was from recycled materials. And to see the people in our costume shop and our scene shop, you know, foraging through garbage to find things, to to, to build our set with, and how they became newly engaged, and how we made a commitment, you know what, we're not gonna have programs. We're going to do this all digitally, and we're going to stand in our lobby and hold the hands of audience who are going to be very angry that there's no printed playbill, but we're going to explain to them why we're doing this and provide ways for them to get all the information they need, even if they don't have a phone or electronic device and right. you know put things printed up on the wall that they could see. Um, but it was so interesting how a, a, a play that dealt with a, an issue in our times actually started to transform the organization from within. Professor Diane Paulus, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. <laughs>